Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Dog Life with No Spoons. This is Renee Smith with Street Dog Rehab and Jay Johnson, owner of Charlie's Way Behavior Consulting. Here's your friendly reminder that if you're neurodivergent, you may want to listen at one and a half speed. And the podcast notes with more information and sources can be found at doglifewithnospoons.com. You can also join the podcast Facebook group, Dog Life with No Spoons, to join in on the conversation. Look for the guides for a post dedicated to this episode. Our guest today, I'm very excited to announce, is Miranda Hebert, a fellow neurodivergent trainer who works with horses and other species, but I'm really excited about horses. (laughs) So Miranda, do you want to introduce yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, totally. And I'm also super excited to talk to you guys, dog life with no spoons. It's I should be here, really. Like (laughs) This is a good combo. So yeah, I'm Miranda Hebert. I'm these days an openly neurodivergent, autistic, ADHD, multi-species animal trainer and behavior technician, consultant, and the terms I really like to use as descriptors these days, educator and coach. That's for Mm. pet owners, other trainers, aspiring trainers, with an emphasis on reaching other neurodivergent individuals like myself, who may have Mm -hmm. a special interest in animal training behavior, as I have had all my life. And of course, went on to have a lot of success in following that passion. A lot of good that's come of it, not just for me as a career, but as a person. Mm -hmm. And especially we're related to the experience of being neurodivergent, though that was unknown and undiscovered for a lot of my life. So Mm -hmm. having grown up both neurodivergent and misunderstood and confused for a long, Mm -hmm. long time, that special interest of mine has been an ongoing thread that's kept me on this track as a lifelong passion and career. So I started training with animals beginning with dogs from a young age, then simply kept going in my professional life and in the education I sought out, eventually branching off to specifically seek out other species opportunities. These days, I live with my two rescue dogs and cat, and of course, the latest edition, my very first owned horse, Buddy, who I sought out as a way of being able to have more flexibility in educating what I do with equines rather than just rely on the work I do with others. So Mm. I've worked in professional settings with a variety of species now, primarily in consulting and the hands-on work that's included in that. I always look forward to adding more new species to work with to my Mm -hmm. list, so to speak. But right now I do work primarily with my own animals as educational tools to teach others in more of a distance education, consulting, coaching, mentorship capacity through video lessons, theory lessons, practical demonstrations. So here I am. Welcome. When did you find out you were neurodivergent? You said not most of your adult life. Curious, when did and how did that come (laughs) up? Yeah, absolutely. So what's funny is... I always considered my family very mental health savvy. So my first counselor and child psychiatrist, even as early as when I was seven, Hmm. my two older half sisters, I think nine and 11 years older than I am, they were, of course, at a different time in their life when I was that young. Their sort of introduction to mental health counseling and psychiatrists and, and yada, yada, yada. So we kind of considered ourselves sort of on board with these differences that, you know, just a mental health level, not every family even had to think about. So I wasn't diagnosed or even introduced to the concept of neurodivergence though. I was 25 or 26 when I had been working with a new psychiatrist for about a year at the time. When I first met with him, 
he said, you know, he'd taken on all of my kind of paperwork. And one of the things he'd mentioned was he was going through it all. And he said, I suspect some kind of attention issues. And, you know, that's just sort of language, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I guess attention. I struggle with attention, whatever. Little did I know that he was actually referring to ADHD, which a year later, he jumped out and surprised me and said, okay, so I determined that we're going to diagnose you with ADHD. And I was like, what? (laughs) Because I knew what ADHD was, right? Like we all know what ADHD was. It was the young boy in my class Mm -hmm. who went and got medication sometimes and jumped off the walls, that sort of thing. We knew what ADHD was. What's amazing is how mental health savvy we were and had no idea of this entire other perspective, which was neurodivergence, which separate from, oh, our brains are faulty and need, you know, medications to change that chemical makeup, our brains are actually probably just built different. And Uh so this entire neurodivergent concept started with a surprise ADHD diagnosis. And now I had had other diagnoses, all kinds of (laughs) diagnoses under the sun that fit more under the mental health umbrella. Mm-hmm. And then, so ADHD was my introduction to not only ADHD, but this entire other concept of brains that were just wired differently. And so that was my introduction. That that was the beginning of the that rabbit hole for me. Nice. Very nice. Okay. Do you feel like that perspective sort of like, because you carried a lot of it for a lot of your life as like a mental health disorder. Sounds like it comes across as more of like a disorder versus neurodivergence being like, oh, it's fine that your brain is different. Do you find that like as you transitioned, you carried a lot of that like disorder label with you or was it more of like a relief? Because like for me, when I found out like Renee was like, "Mm, you have ADHD, I was like, oh, that's a huge relief for me. Like I was immediately able to shed all of that baggage of like it being a disorder and just be like, oh, look, uh, I can do all of these strategies now that make things easier. Did you find more that you carry like had to? I don't know, shed that baggage or was it more of like a, you're like, ah, great relief. Oh yeah, no, totally. It leads into relief. The language that I kind of use to discriminate though, I'm careful. It's not that I want to throw the label mental illness under the bus, Mm. but for us, it was always finding the diagnosis of our mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, that language indicates something treatable and curable, maybe through Mm. medication somehow. And that, of course, we're just faulty and that needs fixing. Neurodivergence to me, I actually felt better with the term disorder as a way of uh, differentiating that I don't have an illness, I just different. I don't mind the word disorder for that necessarily. I see the overlap there. Uh, It really just depends how you want to define these things. But absolutely, before the introduction to neurodivergence, it was all And I kind of say mental health umbrella now. It was mental illness we were always looking at. And ADHD and neurodivergence, of course, a twist on that, in that for the first time, we weren't looking at at sort of my problems as things to be fixed, but that I'm simply different. Mm -hmm. And when you're simply different, all of a sudden, the it's not so much about a cure or solutions, it's about understanding and making fixes for how you can cope with that and do things differently because you're different instead of something wrong with you that you have to cure to get to a normal because I was never normal. I've I've always been different. And with the neurodivergent lens, 
that's perfectly absolutely fine. It's just now differences that we have to understand and can better work with. Right. So absolutely a difference there. More environmental modification versus personal (laughs) modification. (laughs) Yeah. I think honestly, mainly to do with the judgment and other people's Mm. perception piece. I mean, when you say sort of carry something as if it's sort of baggage, what the relief really is shedding that, I guess I want to say tolerance of judgment, but it just puts you in a position to be able to validate yourself to other people too, to say, hang on, I'm not just, you know, I don't just need to be treated like I'm broken, scratch that. I'm just different. So I don't, it was a, like a protective barrier, really, Mm -hmm. or a boundary where I had always dealt with being told I'm broken. I need this and that treatment, da, 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 da. My barriers are problems. Mm -hmm. Now it put me in a position of relief to say, well, actually I'm just different. So (laughs) you take that over there, you know, I'm going to be over here. So well, and yeah. like as a mom, my my four year old just got diagnosed with autism uh, in December, so oh, okay. I got her tested right away. I had, anyways, but <laughs> okay. of all of the questionnaires that I had to answer, it was awful because all the questions only ask about her problems. There were no mm-hmm. questions about what she did well. There was no room to explain. It was did she do this thing or not, and did she do it like other people in her age group? And did right. it you as the other person in the household? Right. They were expecting all these meltdowns and me not liking her because I was expecting her to do what I want and what I had turned the the script on it. Right. And we had embraced what she was bringing and working with her and teaching her communication. And so just the other day, like I like how you brought it up about the how people respond to it. We were just at a play date the other day and Sage had just had a meltdown. <laughs> and so I came inside and I was like, yeah, it's just the tism. And the mom looked at me and she's like, did you just say tism? Yeah, it's just the tism. You is that short for autism? I was like, yeah, you know, she's autistic. Because when you say my child has autism, everybody goes, oh, your child has autism. No, right. my child has a flavor. Her flavor is a touch of the tism. And we're moving on from that. It's a lot easier for people to embrace her and work with her instead of trying to be strange with her. Oh, totally. And everything you just said for me as an adult is exactly my attitude with other people. It's not attitude, attitude, but literally I extremely frank and blunt. And, you know, I can be right out the gate with some of this stuff and the language that I'll use saying I'm autistic or this, that, and the other thing, or, you know, I do something sort of strange in the environment or with new person. And I say, Oh, this is just, (laughs) this is how I am. Or like, that's, there's the autism or like there's the ADHD. And, you know, people come over to my house and they see, you know, all my cupboards are labeled with masking tape and marker because there's the ADHD for you. And then it's just not a secret. And Mm -hmm always everywhere. And this is why, you know, this is very reinforcing for me to do it as well as, as a sort of advocate, people are relieved to Mm -hmm. meet with me and talk with me being so blunt about all kinds of things, because that's not necessarily the norm, but it's so relieving for other people to be able to hear it. And, you know, what you do whenever you do anything with other people is you're making a space for them to, be like you are being or have the boundaries that you put up for yourself, you're actually creating a safe space for other people to feel comfortable having those boundaries for themselves. If I'm talking- well, and I problem, love what you said because it makes safety. It makes it safe to ask questions. 
Oh, totally. But you yes. know, if I'm talking about, you know, my experience or this, that, the other thing, or I'm using language that in other areas of a person's life, you know, secretive or out of bounds, then with me, suddenly they can talk about it. Mm-hmm. They can talk about their experience and we can have a conversation and it's not, you know, it's not, not shamed. That's mm-hmm. a really big difference. There's no shame, no shame. Mm-hmm. There's, there's bluntness, there's descriptions, there's just reality and experience. There's really nothing shameful about it. So mm-hmm. I see that's sort of the, the response that I get from a lot of people, especially I think new people meeting me for the first time, they're always surprised. There's like this, you know, hesitancy, you're meeting someone for the first time. Then there's the shock of like, oh, wow, you're very, you know, forward about this, this kind of things. And then there's just this beautiful relief and acceptance and back and forth that I feel like people get relief from it and so happy to be able to provide that sort of safe space where it's just no big deal. It's, yeah. <laughs> Live within our limitations that society has set for us. Yeah. I mean, geez, I, I suppose I definitely relate that too to my behavior interest and understanding. So, you know, because I'll talk about a lot of things, psychology and these concepts and really just behavior. I mean, cause and effect that people don't know to view in that, those ways, or at least there's always this societal mask of shame. So many things that I just don't even, I don't even touch, you know, it just goes right through me. I don't care. We can talk, we can talk about cause and effect. We can talk about your trauma. Yeah. That totally makes sense. You know, we'll talk about it. It's making sense. It, it all makes sense. So yeah. I mean, it, it's all kind of tied in there with my special interest and my lived experience. I'm willing to share with other people and have them share back to me. So yeah, yeah. if people are surprised by that, it usually turns into a, an intrigue or, you know, relief. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I found that I think maybe part of because I found out earlier than a lot of people, like as a woman with neurodivergence, like 20, what, 23, 24, like that's pretty young for a woman with neurodivergence to find it out. So like, I just, I hear people talk a lot about like the shame that they feel for it. And like, they still like, there's a lot of internalized ableism. I think that like, people like, they're like, I'm neurodivergent and I still try to be neurotypical. I'm like, you could just try to be neurodivergent. (laughs) Uh, Like you said, like that shame around it doesn't really affect me because it was just a relief it was a relief that like oh now I know why I do those things now when I'm stimming I can just yeah. be like yeah because I have autism and if I don't do this I will pick the shit out of my cuticles until they bleed so like this is the preferred option here yeah <laughs> but there's definitely been a big difference between like um like I am always very careful like if it's a stranger or something or like someone new like I'm always using the word neurodivergent or like I'm neurodivergent but to say like, I have ADHD or I have, I think I have autism. They're like, mm, like that. You don't seem like you'd have ADHD. You don't have special interests because my special interest is learning. Like it's, it's just yeah. all, like consuming information, which isn't like a, I don't have a collection of rocks or like a collection <laughs> of something, magazines, whatever you want to. Yeah. I got a lot of books because I like to learn, but. Uh, you got hundreds of pages of notes from all the webinars you've been to. <laughs> Yeah, no pages. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe that's what people sometimes find surprising about, you know, when they meet me, because it's it's not necessarily that I'm forward about, you know, I don't meet someone and say, oh yeah, I'm autistic or I have ADHD. It really, I just really don't let it come in unless it's relevant. And what I mean by that is I don't need to tell you I'm autistic act myself. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, people will still sort of see me as maybe just being a bit odd. If they ever ask me a question, I'm certainly an open book. It may become relevant then. 
but it's not something I hide. And it's not something I highlight either. At the same time, if someone's going to sort of butt heads with me, well, then they might just not be the right person to receive that I'm different. Never mind labels, never mind autistic or ADHD. It doesn't matter. And the people who may find me different or weird or whatever, who can accept that, well, then how it's defined is, is really no big deal. So it comes up when it doesn't, because regardless, I'm just out living my life. And I really, I just don't change that based on literally how I, who I am. I mean, it's almost hard to, to make a, a diff, like a, a differentiate there. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that I'm out trying to act autistic or not trying to act autistic, but I am very good at just not being different than who I am. So however people want to receive that, I'm probably one of the, well, we can say lucky ones, I suppose, or learned ones at this point that I don't, I try not to mask. And if people are going to receive me poorly or whatever, that's just me weeding them out. Like I'm not, I'm really not opposed to that. I'm not going to change myself to fit these other people's perceptions in any particular way. So I think that's what I'm particularly good at. I I feel like that's very much the autistic parts where I find one of the really good strengths of being autistic is the ability to compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. So I can really be objective about other things, but also my own experience. And I can put myself outside of an interaction or my own experience and I treat myself like... I would view someone else maybe in that same circumstance. And that's one of the ways I think being able to compartmentalize and be objective really well comes as a strength. I, I mean, realized it, it, that was an autistic thing until recently. Like, oh yeah? Watching a TikTok and they're like, yeah, neurotypical people, like generally like when autistic people have a conversation, they tend to like do check-ins where like, it's like they step outside of the conversation and they'll check in with the other person about how the conversation is going. And like- <laughs> There are other ways that this shows up, but it was just like the example, the specific example that they were using. And it's something like Renee and I do so much. Like it was, it's so common for me, especially to just like, okay, here's this conversation we're going, I'm going to remove myself from the conversation that we're having in the middle of having that conversation and evaluate what's going on in this conversation and like have a meta conversation about the conversation. Just and like, they're like, yeah, that comes off really fucking strange to neurotypical people. And like, mm. they really can't do that while in the middle of that conversation. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, it's funny because what that sounds to me almost is like thinking before you speak. You know, people will say that think before you speak. <laughs> well, how then do other people do that unless they're not doing that, which is obviously very, very common. You're just sort of in the moment experiencing. But if you do want to think about what you want to say, how you want to be perceived or how you want the other person to interpret your meaning. I mean, it's typically very autistic uh, experience to have a history of being misunderstood. So we like to be very clear. There's the one element of wanting to say what we mean, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. no, no holds barred there. So, you know, we will say what we mean, but we also obviously want our meaning to be interpreted in the way that we mean it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we will think about that and we will work in that space between people in a conversation. That makes sense to me. 
I know a lot of my childhood memories, all of my childhood memories, my entire childhood experience happened in a third person kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. I was constantly looking at things as if I was outside of my body. And I think that's really common because what that leaves other people with is they don't see the, those two things going on. They see someone with sort of a inappropriate facial expression, for example. And like, an, why aren't you reacting to this? And you're like, well, or, because or like in my head I processing. <laughs> yeah. Ironic behavior almost. And mm. that's really, that's where a lot of trauma stems from too. Uh, certainly in my experience, because it was always like I was going around being perceived in a particular way that I didn't understand because it didn't reflect with my inner experience. Mm. It was like, why am I being perceived this way? And of course, as a kid, you just, you don't know anything. This is the only thing you know. This is your experience. Of course, getting older and then discovering these frameworks of how, how to understand that, like, oh yeah, I'm autistic. And look, there's all the information that explains me and my entire experience, poster child. But yeah, that was really, really confusing as a young kid, because why is my, why is everyone else sort of treating me like I'm not me? That's mm. very strange to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's part of the reason why I don't think that like I ever really learned to mask like the whole unmasking thing. Like I never I read so much about it. Like I know that's such a, a neurodivergent experience is to learn to unmask and that's difficult. And like I went through the stage of like your skills get worse before they get better again because like <laughs> you're just trying to you're like, I, I don't have to do those things anymore. But like as a kid and just like, I was never perceived like I wanted to be. And I was like, all right, I'll just stop trying to be perceived then. But it was very much like, uh, it was a lot of rejection in childhood. So like, it was just so much rejection that I stopped trying to connect with other kids. I I had friends and they were 10 years older than me. And so like, as I got older, like there was less masking to learn because I wasn't trying to learn to mask to connect with people because I just wasn't trying to connect with people. And then it was like, oh, you have neurodivergence? Great. I'll try to connect with other neurodivergent people. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, I have really great friends. I understand these people. They understand me. Like, that's great. Great. I'll just continue to be friends with neurodivergent people. (laughs) Right. Yeah, totally. And I think that's kind of an interesting fork where, as I was saying, I think the trauma and the masking stems from that, those early experiences of being confused. Why am I being perceived in a way uh, that I don't feel like I am? And then, you know, having that dramatize you in such a way that you're going and you're trying to make these things not even equal because that's the mask. You're not trying to be more yourself because you don't really understand what's going on there. Now you're just trying to fit everyone else's expectation or whatever. And of course, that doesn't go well. that, That falls apart. And then it just creates more and more anxiety and confusion and you're masking and it's exhausting and you're still, you know, struggling. That's harder. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, you just so, yeah, it's just such an anxiety <laughs> inducing way to live. And of course, then you burn out and, and all these other things. But then I suppose, you know, another way that, that you can take that is is not trying to fill, you know, those fill that gap and potentially going the way of more of a depression. It's yep. a sort of an accept, <laughs> yeah, an acceptance. Okay, this isn't working. And now that's the sort of thing you're sort of anxiously trying to make it work, or you're just straight up depressed about why it, you know, not coming together. And both forks very confusing. Bad. 
No, and I think that's for me, yeah, the learning about neurodivergence, learning about ADHD and then later autism was absolutely the validation and the understanding that I needed to not only drop the mask, but become an advocate because that that's not difficult for me. I don't hold hold back. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We can go there. (laughs) But uh, yeah. And and that's sort of why I model for other people too. And I give people that opportunity and that space to talk about their experience or or however they really want to be, because if I'm not doing it for myself, I'm doing it for other people. So I can get past a lot of things for myself because I'm doing it for other people. Right. Um, that's, that's a big, big element <laughs> for sure. Well, and like, I was a little different. I did end up going to therapy and stuff when I was younger, but I had, I remember screaming all the time, just want to be normal. I just want to be normal. I don't feel normal. And the response I would get back from the world is, but look around you, everything is normal. So what you're feeling is also normal. You're just not interpreting your own feelings right. Mm. So yeah. like I brainwashed myself into all of this, like this is what the world means. And then I got into some really dangerous situations because that's not real. Yeah, myself and then my two half sisters on my mother's side. And then I have my dad, who was basically their dad for a lot of their life. We all lived together. And, but then of course, now we know, of course, too, in hindsight with my parents, but very classic case of my mother who said, oh yeah, your experiences are normal. Everybody experiences that. No, mom, you are also this way (laughs) who does not have a relative experience. This isn't normal, you know, for other people. This isn't typical, you know, these are problems. It's not just that everyone experiences this because you've experienced it. We're just all the same here. And then of course, for me, I get the genetic double whammy because my dad is very much neurodivergent, especially. Uh, We definitely have the same presentation as far as ADHD goes, where I think both my parents are neurodivergent. But as far as ADHD goes, we get the sort of hyperactivity. We're in our own heads. We're having conversations in our heads and then talking out loud before they happen. We're spaced out, but it's because our minds are going so fast in some other direction. We don't hear you. My mom, on the other hand, more of the space cadet. And I think for her and her experience, I mean, my parents are boomers. They're born in the 60s. It was a different time. And of course, how- language to even communicate about yeah. the difference of the experience. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, now that's what we get a lot is we get a lot of older and older generations through mm-hmm. their- lineages with, you know, their children or grandchildren getting diagnosed and discovering all these things. And they go, oh yeah, I relate to that. And finding out all this stuff for the first time, though they didn't have any support or what have you. So of course, then the trouble comes to how, you know, everyone tried to raise their kids, like everything, they did it. (laughs) So So uh, I was raised. Well, and I got one on Tracy. Do you know Tracy Atsuka? No, not familiar. He has a podcast, uh, ADHD for smart ass women. It's a great podcast. Oh, okay. I think I've heard it. Were you on that one? I was, yes. Yeah, I, went and I did think... an episode with her. She's cool okay. as shit. But <laughs> she was one. I like binge listened to all of her episodes, like hundreds of them when I first found her in the neurodivergence of life. Nice. And she did a really great job explaining how growing up without that language can look different at, and like normalize the fact that it's happening where kids are getting autism tested and then the parents are like, oh shit, I'm autistic too. It's a normal thing to be happening retroactively now. I think that's really helpful. Absolutely. And I know for me and my parents and our relationship, 
that's really been extremely helpful to our relationship because of course they Mm -hmm. raised me and we had all the problems together, not understanding me as their child, them as my parents, but the whole everything. And Mm -hmm. now later in life, we get along so much better and because they are able to learn about me and themselves and that entire relationship and everything like that. So it's, it's been really, really nice, actually, especially, I think, getting older and seeing how much my dad and I are the same. Like, he has a funny reputation, you know, super great guy, you know, super funny. But then he's got those funny quirks, too. And, you know, the start of this conversation we've just had, there's a connection here because my mental health savvy family who didn't understand ADHD or neurodivergence, we always joked about my dad having ADHD, but it was a joke. (laughs) It was an insane, ironic joke because we said that, didn't know what ADHD exactly was. And you know what? He had it the whole time (laughs) and we could have (laughs) known But that's where it started and ended. So that's, yeah, really quite funny in a not funny way. (laughs) But, you know, as I get older, I mean, I tell my partner this too. My my fiance and I, we've been together eight years now. And he knows my parents. They know him. They love him, vice versa. And I tell him, like, you know, you're marrying my dad, right? (laughs) Like, this is what you have to look forward to. And it gets worse and worse for me every day. I mean, I'm talking to myself out loud. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, I'm turning into my dad. The cognitive hyperactivity, it was sort of a relieving thing for me to find out. It was like, I fit so many of the ADHD things, but like, I'm not hyperactive. I have chronic fatigue. So like, I could sit down with my computer and not move for eight hours. (laughs) Absolutely unacceptable. (laughs) Um, But like have no hyperactivity. And that seemed like such a a requirement. And then I came across like, no, like cognitive hyperactivity, having four thoughts at one time. That's not normal. Yeah. Somebody was talking to me about their boyfriend who said like, who was upset or confused because their girlfriend was trying to explain like her thought process. And they were like, you don't just have like one thought at a time, like one follows the next. And I was like, what is, what kind of brain does he have? Like that's normal. (laughs) Like, Right. I remember one of my first memories of talking to, I'm not sure if it was a therapist or, or a psychiatrist at the time. But around the time that I had really, you know, hit an age, maybe 11, 12, 13, one of my older sisters had been diagnosed recently with bipolar. Mm. And so the family was kind of learning about that for the first time. And one of the things, and right away, you know, anything we learned was, I relate to these things. Maybe I am also bipolar or these things and I want to get checked out. And unfortunately, learning later, it was kind of at the time more seen like, oh, Miranda just wants to be more like her sister. But actually, in hindsight, my entire experience had nothing to do. I wasn't really thinking about my sister. I was thinking and worrying about my own experience, but finding little lights here and there at the end of the tunnel where, okay, well, maybe this makes sense. And one of my first memories of talking to a psychiatrist, I think, about it was the symptom I would paste in our old house that I grew up in. We had this kitchen and sort of open on two sides and you could kind of walk around uh, out of the kitchen into the living room, dining room, back in the kitchen. And one of the things that I would get caught in doing was pacing in the circle, having a million thoughts racing, racing thoughts. That's what they called it. And so they call in a lot of things. So here I am having this symptom of racing thoughts and high energy where I couldn't sleep. So that was sort of one of the stop gaps in my journey and our journey. 
was just trying to, yeah, make sense of all of these things that would happen or these symptoms and find a way to explain it all. And then, of uh, of course, unfortunately, I did get diagnosed with all kinds of (laughs) mental illness labels, diagnoses and medications and therapies. And really what eventually I found, one of my first catalysts for realizing that it wasn't just ADHD, but I was autistic as well, was one TED Talk in particular, where this woman's experience was so eerily mirrored mine. Mm. And she had had, when I got to the part of the TED Talk where she started listing those diagnoses, those were all the ones that I've had, plus, you know, however much, many more we had. So yeah, super, super common. And of course, the point of that TED Talk was she was explaining, was like, this whole time, I wasn't this. These therapies didn't work. That was one of the first validations that I heard. Therapy didn't work. Mm-hmm. And that was validated for me because, of course, in my entire experience going through all these different doctors and therapies and medications, anything that didn't work, I was told it was my problem. It was right, you weren't trying fault. hard enough. Yes. Yeah, it was my fault that these things weren't working. And as I got older and more frustrated, more and more of the conversation that I would have with these professionals is yeah, I would be frustrated and tell them what wasn't working and that would fall on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the people in my, you know, supposed support corner, they would say the same things. Oh, she's hard headed in this way. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to do this, that, and the other thing. And here I am just being unheard thinking how insane is this? that you're all here trying to help me and I'm the one experiencing what I'm experiencing and I'm telling you about it. And that's not what, that's not part of the puzzle. (laughs) Like it's the whole puzzle. It's the whole thing. So yeah, that's super, super frustrating, but super amazingly validating when I heard for the first time someone else say those therapies and those medications were never going to work because they weren't treating the right thing. Right. So yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you have a similar large ABA feelings to Jade. <laughs> no, aren't what? you an ABA person? Aren't you an ABA like trained person? Me and ABA have a good relationship and it, it's because ABA is what I use in my work with animals. Mm-hmm. And it's how I really understand behavior in animals. And really it's a very objective construct that I, you know, understand a lot of things, cause and effect all of that, that good thing. As far as ABA and autism goes, I can't say I have that experience. Um, Mm. And I certainly don't want to speak out of place for other people's experience. Obviously, Mm. for one thing, if we take a broad view of what goes on in the world, we shouldn't be strapping shock collars to children. And (laughs) seriously, like this is crazy stuff. (laughs) And then learning about how it's used by professionals under Mm -hmm. the name ABA, which really isn't ABA, but a sort of cursory understanding of cause and effect. We really shouldn't be treating children like dogs. And that's to say, that's certainly not to throw any other kind of species under the bus, but there is a difference. (laughs) There is a difference with, you know, how we communicate with and how we communicate with species where we do not share a common language and we do not share that same incredibly amazing complex frontal lobe. Like, I get it as much as I understand about kind of what goes on there. But yeah, it's certainly not my place to speak of, uh, speak to the experience of being autistic and being treated with ABA. I was not. I was certainly, I certainly tried, you know, people certainly tried all kinds of different things on me. Probably ABA was thrown in there. 
didn't work. Whatever. I I rebelled about these things. You know, you get, I think you're just lazy. Didn't you know? Yeah, totally. And lazy and hard headed and yeah, Mm -hmm. totally stubborn. Absolutely. Super Uh stubborn. And, uh, but you know, like things like parent, what parents will try with, you know, all the best intentions, like a point system or, you know, rewards. Well, the dopamine in my brain doesn't really do that. (laughs) It's not, you know, so of course it's extremely frustrating for parents, you know, my parents too, you know, like everybody gets that. What I'm really, really uh, strongly opinionated about, however, especially understanding behavior in the way that I do and with my experience, and this is what I apply to not just animals, but I see it in other people. I see it in other parents treating their kids, not just their kids, but adult children. Now, here's the thing. If you are trying to solve a problem, but you already have decided on the solution to that problem and you apply that solution and it doesn't fix the problem. Well, guess what? That's not the problem's fault. You are just not a very good problem solver. And that's what you see so often. Again, this is an aside from the experience of frustration and, you know, running out of resources as a parent and all of this thing. But what I see so often, and I think especially with kids who become adults and sort of have that now non-relationship with their parents was because they never reconciled or they never look at that in that way. They never see maybe it wasn't the person's fault. Maybe it really wasn't the right solution. It was just a different problem. And exactly. And that's the thing. When you say, I know what your problem is, I know what the solution is, the fact that it's not working is your fault. That's not how problem solving works. And that's (laughs) what I do now. That's what I do. I mean, I do that with animal behavior is I don't Mm -hmm. just decide I know what the solution is. No, I actually work with the problem. (laughs) And if something doesn't work, just like it's not reinforcement, if it doesn't affect the behavior in that way, then your solution is not a solution unless it is. <laughs> like, yes, like it's an experiment it, it, first. Like it's yeah, an experiment to see sure. if the solution will work. Yeah, exactly. If something you try doesn't work in the way that you hope, you know, I think just so many people then make that leap to it's the fault of the other individual, right? And then again, this is a total aside to the experience of going through that and having that be frustrating, completely understandable, it does make my heart ache for a lot of those relationships between human individuals and, you know, parents and children and adult children who now go on to sort of continuously struggle and still kind of have that judgment piece. It hurts me to see. And I think there's a different resolves and I just, I wish I could help everybody. Because that's the thing. justice seeking, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. We have to, there is the respect for the, you know, the parent's experience in that too. That's why I say, you know, this sort of logic piece is separate from going through that frustration and the, that lack of resources and this, you know, head against the wall or whatever. I mean, it's all valid. And just the fact that you sort of see it just sort of persist as a problem and hurt people is really hard. I mean, of course, this happens with animals as well. You know, people but love it's different. Animals. Like with humans, we blame the human. But if a protocol doesn't work with an animal, too easy to go to punisher because well, that's and going think, to show a difference. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? It's if this other maybe gentler thing doesn't work. Well, that's just because the animal needs a heavier hand, blah, blah, blah. Right. So in, in that way, for, to me, that is a version of blaming the animal. You mm-hmm. hear all the time, positive reinforcement doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's objectively untrue. For one thing, it's defined retroactively. 
The other thing is that's actually the end. It's not the animal. It's definitely you. It's definitely how you're approaching this. So yeah, that's not a justification to say that's the reason it it, it wasn't a solution. Yeah. I mean, we know all about that. I made an experience with the DBT therapy. Like they were just it's literally the second time that I had seen this therapist. And she's like, and the first thing they diagnosed me was with depression because I stopped connecting with any people around me. So they were like, depression. You can't do your dishes. You right. can't get out of bed. Depression. Like you can't shower. Depression. Mm, interesting. Okay. And anxiety and social anxiety. And so then they're like DBT therapy. But then like my internal experience was not matching any of the experiences that anyone was talking about. And I was like, what? Like, Okay, now I feel even more apart from these people. And like <laughs> every week I would say, like, I am not making progress with these things. Like, I'm right. not. How do you actually remember to think a thought when something happens? Like, there's already four of them there. And they're basically just like, well, you're not trying hard enough to like actually put these things into practice. You're not exactly put a sticky note up here or like right. put a reminder here or what. And I'm like, these things are not working. And like, just right. thinking that thought does not get rid of the six other thoughts that came up because this thing happened and are, I was like, this is not working. And like, they basically were just like, well, you're doing it wrong. And I was like, well, I quit. Right. I yeah, quit. no, absolutely. And for me, it was CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which is generally a lot of people's introduction to kind of group therapies and things like that, because it's, yeah. of course, it's about, you know, better understanding, you know, how your thought process may go and then changing that way. And for me, I very quickly, I mean, with no problem at all to talk about my experience and then understand it, you know, in from an objective viewpoint, very good at that. And I was very good at sharing. I was very good at understanding other people's experience. I became like a pro group CBT therapy person. Yeah. <laughs> because I understood everything. It didn't mean it helped me. I knew all and the right I, answers. Yes. Exactly. Like I could teach this myself, you know, yes. like I don't need to be here. So actually, you know, one of my experiences was, you know, can you, I want to go try DBT because as far as I understand about DBT, it is more, again, a, in appealing to my very structured logical brain. I do understand if I can you know, learn breathing techniques. I can slow down my heart rate, da, 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 all of these things. I understand how they can all connect. Can I, you know, do that instead of this? And of course it was never about that. I had to sort of go through the process and, you know, for the 10th time or whatever it was. And yeah, eventually I just said, I mean, that, that experience in particular was the last time I I bothered with CBT therapy because it's like, (laughs) I'm going to just do better figuring it out on my own. Yeah. Well, and yeah, like you said, like I, could, I give up. I'm super introspective. And I think part of that is autism. Part of that is like, I started fictional writing when I was like 13. So mm. I have ample amounts of experience inhabiting the brain of another person and exploring how right. different feelings, different events, different contexts are going to create different behavior and just right. exploring that in all sorts of different ways. And so like, I could, it took even me forever to understand Yes, I could go from there was an event and cognitively process like here is the emotion label and here Mm -hmm. is the behavior that it has produced and Mm -hmm. here is how that's all connected. But I wasn't actually feeling and processing those feelings. (laughs) Right. There's that compartmentalization coming into it. Absolutely. Of course, I'm acting this way because there was this and this happened, but like wasn't actually actively recognizing and regulating those feelings. And so like, of course, Mm. these cognitive therapies weren't working because I could see already 
yeah, right. but I did it because this, and like logically the answer would have been yes. this, but like my actions <laughs> yeah. weren't logical. Could I tell you why? Absolutely not. Don't know why it wasn't <laughs> logical to do that thing, but I still had the logical thought. So like I was doing all of the DBT thoughts that they said I was supposed to be doing, but it didn't change my behavior. And, and you like, know, well, then you're not doing the thoughts. And I was like, but I am. <laughs> and therein lies the logical, you know, conflict because you're there being so good at understanding exactly what you're being told and da, 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 da. And yet it's all overshadowed by the fact that this is supposed to work and it's not working. And when you say that it doesn't work, that's what you get back. And mm-hmm. so there's an entire association made there with just it being frustrating and, you know, useless and pointless to a lot of people. And a lot of people come into sort of therapy that way, like, oh, this is useless and pointless. And then they, they find great success in it. Right. But for certain individuals, it's not, it's not that. It's not the same frustration in that way. It, it is different. After I dropped out of high school, which is a whole other story related, but let's try to keep on this point here. I wanted to do was actually, I really wanted to go to college and and university. I wanted to study uh, psychology and later realized that philosophy was also a very good (laughs) use of my um, engine. But uh, what I wanted to do when I was, what, 15 at the time, how I decided that I was going to convince a college to let me go was I was going to write a book or a paper. I mean, I didn't know what that entailed, but I was going to write something and what it was and it was actually going to be called, again, this is my 15-year-old brain, bear with me here, but it was going to be sort of titled, I think, The Invincibles. And I was going to write about how I understood criminals because I understood the experience of not uh, fearing consequence. Mm-hmm. I thought that I understood, and that that comes from that autistic compartmentalization and objectivity and being able to step outside of yourself. I thought I had this understanding and, you know, if I wrote about it and, you know, I made a good enough case, I could sneak my way into college somehow by sharing my, you know, what I thought I I understood from a unique perspective on how, on understanding that kind of, and it's funny because I was often perceived as a very bad child. I never did anything, you know, crime or illegal or anything like that. I was really just trying to survive and get by. So yeah, I, I definitely had this very, very strange reputation and perception that I, again, going through my whole childhood, just didn't make sense. Like I was just always so confused. But that's the thing. Again, as a child, you only know what you're faced with. So I was learning the whole time, learning, quote unquote, that I was a bad kid. Mm-hmm. And that so, so then all you have to connect there is my experience, bad kid. There's nothing else there, right? So it seems odd and yeah, just totally confusing. (laughs) Very confusing. I was thoroughly confused as a child, teen, young adult, because like very strong perception that my parents thought I was a bad child, but also a very strong internal experience of like, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not trying to do anything wrong. I am trying to do everything not wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. To the extent of like, I never got in trouble at school, never was late for school, never got detention, never got sent to the principal's room. I caused a fuss in some of my classrooms because we butt heads, but like didn't do sports, didn't do extracurricular activities, didn't participate with the family, didn't go to friend's house on the weekends. Like I would come home from school, I would go to my room, I would read books and I would write. And like that was highly threatening to my parents because like their perception Mm. of being a good parent 
was producing a good kid who Mm. maybe got good grades, but like did good socializing and reflected back on them and be like, oh, look at what good parents we are because good child that's doing things in the world. And I was just like, I'm not doing any of that. I am going to (laughs) hide in this room doing nothing. And like that created this perception of like, they thought I was this awful child. Mm. I was like, I'm not doing anything wrong. And so I was like, how can I be a bad child when this was my internal experience? And now I understand like, oh yes, it was very threatening to them. And they did probably think I was pretty strange. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Again, it's that weird, like third person perspective. I'm sure there's a better way to sort of describe this without sounding totally kind of (laughs) nuts. I'm like, you know, it's, it's not exactly an out-of-body experience. It's an autistic experience. Um, being able to be objective about your own experience in your own life. Like, yeah, absolutely. Just say, like, and just kind of having not, that not necessarily connect, though, with your behavior. And, of course, thereby your perceptions. It's very odd. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I find this actually a very good strength, you know, as far as neurodivergent and autistic individuals goes. Because, of course, now me with animals and certainly behavior assessment... I'm there. Like I'm objective, like, like the whole, you know, spiel about being an actual problem solver. Like that's the objectivity piece. That's the piece that I don't have to lie to myself about. I don't lie to myself about anything actually, because reality (laughs) is enough. I do not want to complicate that. I actually want to understand things and use the objective so much better than other things. (laughs) Like I don't want to bring in new things. I don't want anyone else to you know, and that's probably where I, I butt the head, butt heads the most with other people who aren't as sort of fluid and, and practiced at this. Because, of course, trauma presents itself in all kinds of ways. Projection is certainly something that a lot of people do. And uh, <laughs> when I see someone projecting and that looks counter to the reality, I'm never the good guy for pointing that out. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I mean, I don't get along with everybody, but that's all right. All the best to them. Yeah, I said to Renee the other day, I was like, I'm pretty sure my philosophy professors clocked the fact that I was autistic long before I did. And they're because I took an intro to philosophy course. And then like, Mm. both of the professors started emailing me. And it wasn't just, I mean, it was at the end of that first course, I got an email from the professor being like, can you please consider taking another philosophy course? Can you please consider making this your major or your minor? And I was like, you're crazy. That was boring as fuck. (laughs) Oh, really? And then I took another course because like at that point I was like, I didn't know what to make my minor. I was like doing chemistry and then I switched to biology and then I'm writing and psychology. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I took another philosophy course just because I think it was like a co-credit for something else. Again, throughout that course and at the end of that course, getting emails, you're so good at this. Can you please consider making this your minor? And I was like, again, you guys are insane. I don't even like this. But they were like, (laughs) you're apparently we're just like, you are so good at being objective that we need you (laughs) to go into philosophy. And then like definitely hated it throughout college and then graduated, didn't do anything with it for a year. And then it was like, oh, my God, I love. Ethics. (laughs) You know, I was going to say, curious, did you ever take a formal logic philosophy course? I think it was like that was just rolled into our intro classes. Like, they, okay, probably at least a separate class, or at least that's not what they called it. But I think, Uh, yeah, at least a little. And so when I did go to college, I did major in in philosophy. And what I was going to say is, I was also 
very good at it. But especially when it came to formal logic, I absolutely excelled. And of course, now I understand that as connection to autism and, and objectivity. It's a nice little framework. Um, well, absolutely. Oh, I love it. And so what I would do, would I would go and I'd do my homework and then I would do it again. I, I wasn't cheating off myself. I just actually wanted to do the questions like they were new again because I, yeah. I just enjoyed it that much. And what I'm going to say is I was one, I was always the biggest talker in the classes that were larger, but at least a, a, on a couple of occasions, there'd be like one or two other people also in the class and the class, like the ethics classes for sure. That would just turn into this round robin back and forth between me and the teacher and a few other people, maybe, or if someone else said something, I certainly had a thing or two to say, uh, <laughs> that, that kind of thing, especially if what they said didn't make sense. I'd go to the I'd get that facial expression that I didn't necessarily have to control over and, you know, say my piece yeah. or whatever. But yeah, no, philosophy teachers love me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny too, because when I did start to struggle in school, I actually ended up not being able to go to my final exam for that formal logic class, which was worth, I think, it must have been like 40% of the grade. Mm. Well, I got passed with a B Anyway, <laughs> and I think I can't tell this for sure, but I'm pretty sure at the time it was just that professor being like, you know what, there's just no way that this wouldn't have worked out for this individual. So I'm going to pass them. And they did. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, professor. <laughs> that, that was great. I mean, it certainly didn't add insult to injury for the um, for the struggles I had started to face after about a year of college. And I, I didn't make that exam. I wanted to stay in college. That's a whole other story. <laughs> I'm very surprised that I made it all of the way through college, but I think it yeah. was only because I like lived alone and didn't talk to anybody. And it was literally just school and home and my right. home stuff didn't get done. I was bringing a blanket with me to class and my professors were like, why do you have a blanket with you? I was like, cause I'm depressed as fuck. And if the only oh. option was getting out of bed with this blanket and coming to class or staying in bed, the blanket was coming with. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah the no, philosophy professors, that. like I never spoke in class. Unless like they called on me, but like I was always a student who sat in that like front little corner and I would just like be peeling my orange while I listened <laughs> to them talk. And then like if he knew, like if he needed somebody or like if he needed somebody to say like something that was going to cause sure. a discussion, he'd be like, all right, Jade, <laughs> right. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> oh, one of my favorite memories from uh, a professor that I actually took a few of his courses with because I, I liked him so much. He was the first philosophy professor I had in critical thinking, which was sort of philosophy 101, um, was this was a completely innocent, whatever I was, whatever I looked like was completely innocent at the time, just sitting in his class. But during when he was talking about something, I was just listening. He stopped and I guess he was looking at me and for a few seconds there was space. And then he just said, uh, do you have something to say? And I guess he was <laughs> talking to me and he was like, you look angry, but it, it's funny because of course I would, if I was ang anger, it was just like, you know, if someone had said something that was really not logical or something and I was like, eh, that's not right. It was just, you know, it was friendly banter back and forth. You know, we had a good relationship. So I get, he just stopped one time in class and, and thought like, do you, you know, do you have something to say here? I was like, no, no. This is just my now face. Now that you that mentioned that, that facial expression thing, I wonder how much because I never even thought about that because my well my thinking face is usually angry face like people just right you have really bad resting bitch face like yeah, yeah it's like yeah it's like <laughs> disgusting and confused and it's just your brain working so yeah no autistic people get seen as uh condescending too mm. oh don't even I would always just like listen to I'm all the, the other people 
I remember thinking like I didn't participate in class much because like there's no way to phrase this in a way that doesn't make it sound like I'm being pretentious, but like they sure. were <laughs> analyzing and talking about the material on a level lower or a, just a different level, a different level yeah. than I was interpreting and discussing the content on. And so like I couldn't right. participate or like I didn't think participating in their conversations was all that productive because right. I was like, I already answered that question. I know what your next question is going to be. I already solved that too. I'm over right. here. Yeah. <laughs> but if I bring up this question, none of you are going to understand. So like, I'll just... I'll just do my thing over here. But I wonder how much of my thoughts were coming out in my expression during those conversations. And I just was completely oblivious. (laughs) Oh, totally. And I I was going to say (laughs) both things kind of causes that condescending problem or the arrogance or the, you know, you're talking down to people problem because, you know, maybe it is partially in our facial expressions, but it is also in the way that we may just come out with information or the logic Mm -hmm that we're using or the language, or like I was saying before, how we tend to want to say what we mean and be interpreted very precisely. And that sort of precision language and approach absolutely comes across differently to different people. And condescension is up there. And of course, the, the traumatizing part is it's not an intent thing. It's not ill intent. It's not coming from a place of condescension. I almost don't want to get into this because it's just, I mean, to me, it's just so obvious. And I feel like talking to you, it's just so obvious, but <laughs> social media online, trying oh to have God. a conversation with text and using text. I mean, I tend to use a lot of emojis now, a lot of smiley faces, which by the way, also comes across as arrogant and condescending. There's sure really no winning. There's no winning, There's no. but um, try as I might, I do try to put in maybe some emotion or niceness. I don't even know how to say what I'm trying to say at this point, right? Like, but you just, you try to not be perceived as arrogant or condescending and you get so far not other times. And yeah, it, it all falls apart. Because, it depends yeah. on how many spoons I have that day. Cause like with the writing, sure. again, I have so much practice going between like, this is what a person wants to say versus this is what a person is going to interpret versus this is what they're actually right. going to say, which has these implications. But like, that's, to answer a message on Facebook, uh, suddenly I'm going through this process of 10 steps to get from where I want to say this, but they might interpret this. And then if I say this, then they might interpret this and I'll add in this definition. And like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't totally lost for that every day. <laughs> yeah. No. And the thing is at the bottom, like at the foundation, if you're just straight up blunt and just say what you think the information needs to be to get across that there's your first mistake because it's got to be this other thing that, yeah, you have to do all those 10 steps to figure out. And, you know, that, and that's the thing with, you know, me and my limits these days is if I can't actually just talk about the content and just sort of have a conversation like that, I'm not gonna, you know, bother. I don't want to, I'm just going to get wry and sour. And I don't also want to be that to someone, even though that that's what they're maybe making me feel. Yeah. I just, I don't have to, do it. <laughs> but uh, the people that are going to ask the questions, like that's been my thing. Like I find people oh, that yeah. will ask questions rather than assuming, because a lot of people are just going to take what you said and be like, okay, that was rude. Instead of being like, okay, but did you mean for it to come across that way? <laughs> like, oh, exactly. No, not at all. <laughs> and I always now keep in the forefront of my mind, if someone else is possibly neurodivergent or just simply has trauma or is having a bad day, and I, there's a couple of things. I never assume what someone knows 
which is mm-hmm. also, it doesn't help with the condescension piece because that uh-huh. means I'll t- tend to use big language as if I'm talking down to someone who might not understand. The thing is, what I'm actually doing is I'm not assuming that they don't understand, especially yeah, of sure course, everybody's working on the same definitions. <laughs> sure, exactly. You know, especially obviously industry conversations and that sort of thing. So I never assume that they don't know what I'm about to say. But typically how the conversations go is let's get on the same page so we both understand where we are and go from there. Also, no, there's really just no winning again. But yeah, also just never assuming that someone else does have an emotion that I may be interpreting behind their words and really just trying to, which this gets me in trouble all the time, trying to communicate using the words. And that's a big autistic problem, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. other people have, they have all this emotion behind it. And I'm not, not just not tapping into that, but really struggling just with trying to understand the words and use my words back. And then all of a sudden I'm trying to have this conversation where the words are and someone else is upset that I'm not where they are. And I'm just lost and everyone's upset. Just (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, it's... uh, Uh, too, you know, if I, I say this a lot, you know, with my partner, you know, we've had to learn a lot of our relationship things and how to work together. And sometimes, you know, in real life, my tone, again, same with the facial expressions, the tone can kind of seem off and things Uh just seem (laughs) off to interpret. But I say, I promise, and please just respond to my words, because that's kind of where all my spoons and all my resources are going into. And that's really what I'm focused on. Insert enthusiasm here. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, yeah. That might help. Um, Insert feeling. That's that's usually what I do. It works very well. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, as far as you had mentioned checking in on the conversation and how that's going, there's really no, I mean, it's a very healthy way to communicate. I think especially with a loved one is just saying, hang on, how are you feeling about this conversation really? Because, you know, that's the thing. As soon as something starts to go a little sideways, you don't recognize these things, you're very quickly going to be having a different conversation than the one you thought you started with. So absolutely. Apparently people just do that. They just air into different conversations and they're not staying on track. And I am confused about how they ever have a conversation. I will start with the presented logic and people will go in different directions. And the whole rest of the conversation just becomes about getting on the same track of logic everyone has jumped ship on and I'm just there getting in trouble for now being meta or whatever. Like, Oh my God. (laughs) And like to me, it's very clear that we present a logical argument. And if you're going to argue that, then you're going to pull from very specific spots and argue it in a specific way, according to the rules of logic. And people are like, let's not talk to people. Yeah. (laughs) Talking to people is just too hard. Yeah. Let's just avoid it. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, again, for me and my, you know, life experience at this point, if I do struggle too much with a particular individual or, you know, whatever, it's just not going to get any more of my time. It's just too important for me as a boundary to keep myself protected and, and to use really all my resources in areas where it is, you know, a good thing and welcome. And, and as you say, Jade, you know, when people ask questions, I excel. I, I like, I'm like, yes, please ask me questions. Because as soon as you ask me a question, you tell me that you want to know the answer. I got you. So that's actually why I eventually made the leap in my career to less of a, well, for one thing, with the wrong people sort of in the wrong system, sort of consulting and, and that kind of industry work to more of an educator role where I can use all of that strength and I can use all that, that logic and 
and ability to understand, and I can teach other people about it. And the people who are going to learn from that, they want to be there. They want to learn. And I know, you know, as we had said, listening to your last published podcast, I know, Renee, you had said that as well, how people who work with you, they there's sort of a a prerequisite or or understanding there that they're going to they want to learn because Mm -hmm. you want to teach them. And of course, that's just more of the, the things that I had mentioned before we started this that I related to, of course, is just being neurodivergent because I will never learn just from the what. I don't want to be told the what. I want to be told the why and the how because I'll be able to apply that why and the how. I need to understand why and the why. I'll figure out the how rather. Bottom up thinking. Um, yeah. And I don't want to teach people just the what. I want to teach people who will never have to hire me again. And unfortunately, that happens all the time. <laughs> it for better and worse, you know. I maybe I don't make as much money, but I have I get the most wonderful, you know, six months down the road feedback that my client who only needed, you know, one or two sessions with me has gone on to do things that we never talked about specifically, but they figured out on their own based on what we had discussed. And of course, that's really a good thing for me. And again, leads perfectly well into being able to be more of an educator and sort of have that, have better reach, as well as one of my earliest feedback from some of my employers when I would teach group dog classes, for example, constant area to improve was make sure you're dumbing this down. I never (laughs) like to hear that because not only did I struggle with that, I'm like, how, (laughs) what? If, cause if you're not explaining the why behind something, you really are just telling them what to do. And then you hear, oh no, that's actually what we want you to just tell them what to do. That's all they, you're told that's all they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, not everybody, because that's mm-hmm. not how I learn, right? So that's always a conflict between how I learn is I need to understand the why, and yet how I'm supposed to teach is I'm just supposed to tell people what to do because that's what they want to hear. Where are the people like me? That's who I want to teach. That's who I want to work with, right? So yeah, always struggled with that. Eventually, you know, did not necessarily thrive in those kind of within those kind of requirements. Always in my own practice, I have always been more of a let's talk about the why to this. And then, you know, I can show you the how and and we can do the the practical stuff too. But I never want to just teach you what to do. I -hmm. need you to understand this. So, yeah. Well, and you and Jade are similar in that, like Jade Clicker taught somebody to target train their lizard. And now she gets pictures of like the lizard (laughs) doing cooperative care at the vet and stuff. Like it's the coolest, cutest thing ever. Is great. We had a couple of sessions and literally just taught her the concept of like, here is how to arrange your environment. Here is how to the timing of things. Here is how you're going to have to adjust because it's a lizard. Like let's experiment with some things. And yeah, literally got, all I did was teach her how to clicker train, but all of a sudden she's like, because you taught me how each piece worked, I just clickered or target hit him into a carrier. And we're going to take it to the vet so that he has decreased stress at the vet. And then we'll use the target at the vet to like get him onto the table. And I'm going to use it so I can start weighing him on a scale. And I'm going to use it so we can start transitioning him to an outdoor enclosure and back again. I was like, oh my God, look at you. All you did was learn how to target train. And now look at you. You're doing all of these things. It's amazing. Love it. And it totally is amazing. And you know, what's amazing too is I'm at a, with my horse, we can get into a bit more if if you'd like, but uh, with this new experience with horses and being around other people with horses and, and the difference in traditional 
horse training and of course what what I do and what we do in you know positive reinforcement and behavior connections there people always so impressed because when they see me do something they understand it right away mm-hmm. the horse does this like they move towards the target they touch the target whether they hear me click or not doesn't necessarily matter because once they do that step they get some food then they do a next step and they get some food then they then they you can very quickly see behaviors grow like that okay now it's two steps blah 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 and so people see this and it right away it makes so much sense to them of course where the disconnect comes from is that (laughs) and everything else to do with maybe proper training or taking that and applying it to other things like riding or this, that, and the other thing. So, but it's always so amazing to me because when people see it sort of without judgment, they're happy about it. They're impressed. They're like, oh, this is so simple. And look what you get from it. And it's like, yeah, that's. So tell us more about your buddy project. Cause I know it has been really cool to watch. So definitely. Oh, good. We are running out of time, but I want to hear about it at least. Okay. We've already ran out of time, but I want to hear about it at least a little. Yeah, totally. So the Buddy Project was, uh, like I had mentioned, Buddy is my horse and he's new to me. As the, he's the first horse I've been able to actually on my own as an adult. Finally, I uh, got my pony by buying it myself sort of thing. <laughs> but I wanted to own a horse and have sort of that full access to a horse to be able to teach other people what they can do with their horse and, and be able to demonstrate how this all can work. And of course, that's what we're doing. I specifically sought out a horse who had a bit of a problematic uh, background. So Buddy in particular was sort of retired early from the training program that his previous owner, who had raised him since he was full, had him on and he did not do well with. So they sort of had given up on him. And that's pretty much the long and short of how he came to me with some fun behavioral issues like rearing whenever he doesn't want to do something or biting and mouthing things, pretty much the two main ones. Now, of course, this comes up as his sort of sensitivity or aversion to startle. And he's a risk Mm. to respond very, for example, dangerously to aversions or aversive Mm -hmm. escalation. And of course, that's not at all what I do. Everything I do is very, very much consent-based. I will work all the time with him at Liberty. I want him to be able to have complete agency over his body and his space. We work, you know, around where he has access to hay, that sort of thing for behavioral choice and outcome choice. And of course, what I do do is I use positive reinforcement to shape behaviors And so with Buddy, I get to do all of that sort of at my free reign and basically throw it all on video, tag alongside it some lessons of the theory that's going on underneath all of this, and then, you know, have that practical application be proof of concept simply for other people to be able to learn, not just because I'm telling them what to do with their horse, but because Mm -hmm. I'm showing it as I mean, that was a, that was a big part of the advocacy for me is, you know, that's how we're going to make an impact. And then it was also important to me to get a horse who was physical, physically sound to be able to eventually ride because, you know, we're going to be able to show all of those skills from the ground up that mm-hmm. you can ride also through all of this consent-based positive reinforcement, mm-hmm. you know, stuff. 
and you can have a beautiful relationship with your horse. And the big part of the advocacy piece being you don't have to make concessions either. You know, you don't have to not ride, for example. And I mean, that's, that's huge. That's, I mean, for me as an animal trainer coming at it from looking very much so at the animal, riding is like 1% of, you know, what you can do. like walking a dog. Right. But then so many people who own horses, why do they own horses? They own horses to ride. It's like 95% of what it is for them. So, I mean, but you can have that. You can. And instead of just say that, instead of just, you know, trying to present my case in theory, I just eventually wanted to, again, get to a place in my life where I could own a horse and just say, you know, without anyone else's permission, you know what, I'm just going to show you. (laughs) So that's what we're doing. And the Buddy Project, as it is named, is that project with Buddy. And right now it's actually, it's completely free. I decided that just in the general scheme of what I'm doing and all kinds of industry areas in my life right now, I really just want this project to fill my cup. So it fills my advocacy cup. If people want to learn from me and they can come to me freely, I will answer their questions. I love to do it. So that, you know, without a financial barrier in any way, yes, it costs me, but that was the sort of really, it was always going to be a big investment for me to make. And that's what I wanted to do that. I want to make that investment. I want to be able to add to this advocacy of consent-based, you know, force and fear-free positive reinforcement training of horses. I wanted to be on the front lines of that because I grew up with horses and I sort of knew all of that background and history and common goings on. And of course, as my education grew and everything over time, I knew what I was looking at. So yeah, that's where it comes from. I'm 30 years old this year and just bought my first pony. And (laughs) that's why basically sums it up. Yeah. Balance out the burnout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't necessarily take it all away, but you know, it's, it's work, but day two, I I wanted a horse out of it, you know, so (laughs) may as well have both. Yeah. That's something I've really struggled with because I would love to get involved with horses. Like ever since a kid, I was like, I love horses. They're so cool. I really want to be involved with horses. But like now that I'm in a place where like, okay, I could do riding lessons or I could do something like that where I could get involved. I can't afford to own one myself. Right. But like I could get involved and it's like, "Mm." but like uh, I can't because like ethically it feels real gross because everything around, like everything that would be available does not fit within the ethical framework that I work in. And I would not be able to go in and make those changes. So like, I don't even at this point try because it's just like, I don't really want to, I don't want to get into those muddy waters right now. (laughs) Well, absolutely. And that was the thing. I, I grew up around horses, you know, with a friend's horses, they had horses and, you know, I was growing up in stalls and, you know, watching the riding lessons and, you know, getting on a horse myself, you know, every so often. And then even working in, you know, barns here and there throughout my entire career. And, you know, just like my work with dogs as well and in other professional environments where I was an employee, over time, it just got harder and harder and harder on the heart to justify what I was trying to do, which was continue to be involved hands-on with these animals. But ultimately that became not worth it because I was not going to, I wasn't able to survive in those environments. I think the last barn I did work at was very fine, you know, lovely people knew that what I did as an animal trainer and was interested in what I may have 
been able to tell them, not that they knew what I was going to tell them, of course, but that may have just directly conflicted with what they wanted to hear. But just the simple job of managing a barn and their stallions and having to use the the chains that, you know, you you can wrap a chain around the nose. So when you need to, you know, give it a yank, it hurts more, you know, that kind of thing. Like these were things that I just couldn't do just because they had to get done. So no, absolutely. Same with dogs uh, and, you know, things like group care, daycare, stuff like that. At a certain point, it just became an ethical, too big of an ethical conflict. And then eventually too, an educational one where I was working for people who sort of, I didn't have that sort of say, you know, not just in the ethics, but in the even, you know, efficacy of things that were going on. And it just, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't justify again, the the ability to, to be there and do it and work with all these animals uh, for those reasons. So at a certain point, you know, my career, I just decided I cannot work for anybody anymore. I just have to work for myself. Uh, so that happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't relate with that at all. Like I was heavy handed when I was training dogs at the beginning. I was not fair is the word I like to use to describe my prior training methods. I didn't fall into positive reinforcement because I was feeling bad about what I was doing. It wasn't working anymore. Hmm. I was taking it too literally and I was taking it too far. So it was no longer working for me because I needed to do something else. And I had 14 dogs at home and any of the training methods I was using for that quantity of dogs was never going to work. Right. I had to find new things. Yes. I I did this on the podcast. Yes. Yes, Yes, probably. (laughs) So it's interesting and it's hard to listen to folks like you guys saying like, it felt icky and he wanted this because you guys are so authentic with where you're at. I wasn't, the disconnect was there. I didn't even allow myself to not feel good about the methods. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like that wasn't allowed to be an option because this is just what had to be done. Well, hmm. and you didn't really have any exposure to anyone talking about ethics. Correct. It wasn't what it was never should we be doing. It's just, this is what we do. And when right. it is what you do, then you have no choice, but to just ignore or find ways to justify that cognitive dissonance. Like, right. Oh, sure. Yeah. And yeah. I do come from a fairly, I don't want to say rare because that kind of just sounds a little bit pretentious to me, but uh, <laughs> I certainly have a lot. There's a lot of people in this industry that I, I can't relate to because mm. often people will come either from like mm-hmm. as a crossover trainer or just as a, you know, more of an adult, they say, I don't want my nine to five anymore. Or they met this dog that changed their lives. It was always the same for me. I always wanted to be an animal trainer. I started young and fortunately for me, why well, started my education, even as a student in other group dog training classes, where I started was with uh, my puppy and, and an agility, they were using positive reinforcement training methods. So right away, I started with that application. And then when I got into more uh, book reading and formal you know, education, I just expanded from there. So I not only uh, came into the industry from a later you know, point in my life at all, I've also never been a sort of punishment aversive trainer. So yeah, Mm. it's that I do see that I don't always connect or the experience is different. Yeah. And I know that about myself too, in relation to my, to, you know, our peers is I don't have that same experience. uh, And they certainly don't have my experience. So yeah, it's different and it's interesting. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm a rare, a- I would say a rare start to it as well. Cause like I mm-hmm. also as a child wanted very much to be an animal trainer. Like asked me when I was five years old, I was like, I want to train dolphins. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Like, that was dolphin. It was dolphins for me too. Why I was, was like, I want to be a marine biologist. And I wanted to be a marine biologist. And you know why? It's because when we were younger, the internet wasn't such a thing. I only but, had like books. Yes, and I thought it was marine shows. biology. I thought it was marine biology, that field. It only occurred to me when I was 20, teaching my first group dog classes at the time, that I think, hang on. It's an animal I ne- trainer. <laughs> I never went to college to be a marine biologist, but I'm actually closer now to training dolphins than I would have been if I went to marine biology. That is amazing. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I'm going to train dolphins. And then, like, there was a huge disconnect from that because basically was told that wasn't realistic. And, like, when I was going to college, nobody seemed to ask, like, what do you actually want to do in life? And, like, told me that, like, animal training is a whole ass degree. I wish somebody had told me that's a whole ass degree, but they didn't. Right. (laughs) But like, so basically hugely disconnected from that want to train animals and went into, like, chemistry, biology, Mm. all very closely related. I was like, I still want to learn animals. And then was like, okay, what's the closest next best thing I could get a zookeeper. And so I like interned at a zoo and that's all very heavy, positive reinforcement. And then I disconnected from that again, because I was like, I am not going to destroy my body and my mental health for this industry and get paid Mm. like it. So we're not doing that. And then had taken all of these philosophy courses and then basically reconnected after college again and went, well, what can I do with all of this? Because I don't, want to work in a lab. I don't want to work as a field biologist. I don't want any of these jobs that they're telling me that I can have with this degree. And nobody has really even told me what you can do with this degree. Like the whole transition out of college and trying to figure out what the fuck I was going to do and how to apply for it and what the options were was awful. Basically was then at that point reconnected with, I want to be an animal trainer. What is a sustainable way that I can do that with? And then also had all of this philosophy learning with me and had already decided that like, I don't think speciesism is a thing for my personal experience. So then it was just like, put it all together. (laughs) Now I'm a dog trainer that does this thing and like never was able to parse very easily through information and be like, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. This I like, I like this. No, I don't like that. I I think that awareness of ethics and philosophy before going into it has given me a very unique perspective on things. I both can't and can believe that we both started wanting to be dolphin trainers and both (laughs) became multi-species animal trainers and both have a post-secondary philosophy education background. How strange. (laughs) But at the same time, if we sort of come full circle here in our conversation, I did always know what I wanted to be an animal trainer. Like you said, five, six, seven years old, it never changed for me. As far as being taken seriously goes, I was in a stall one day. We were probably eight years old in my friend's horse's stall and her mom had come up and she was actually a head nurse at the time. And she asked us, well, girls, what do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) Uh, And my answer was dog trainer. And she had heard, because I guess I mumbled, a doctor. Oh, wow. That's great. I mean, here's this girl, here's this girl who everyone expects to never make it. And, you know, to be lazy and all the thing, wanting to be a doctor at eight years old. That's amazing. And I said, Oh no, I said dog trainer. And she straight up goes and walks away. (laughs) Like that's how that went. But a really, really honestly fond memory of my friend's mother who has sadly passed early. So, Mm. uh, yeah. There you go. I always knew. I always knew. And it was, it was autism. It was autism. (laughs) Yeah. Reminds me that TikTok of the, what is it? 
he doesn't mention anything about being autistic in any of his videos and then like just recently posted videos like why did you get into dog training and it's this voiceover of like well no one really likes me <laughs> yeah, like, I'm autistic. <laughs> yeah nice. no I was autistic and I knew I knew my strengths and yeah here we go <laughs> here we are yeah we are. I totally get that <laughs> Oh my gosh. Literally talk all day at this point. I have to go. We have to stop. Yeah. Are there any last minute things that you wanted to say before we wrap this up? No, no, that was great. You know, coming into this, I know like we had talked and connected about in the first place. I certainly am happy to add to the ability for other potentially unrecognized neurodivergent folks or people who are considering themselves as autistic or having ADHD, I want to be able to add to that ability to relate uh, through my experiences and sharing that. Of course, on a more, I guess, functional level, my website is always www.animalempowered.com. The Buddy Project is free. It's just uh, basically a follow on Facebook uh, as it is right now, but you can always find the information on my website and, you know, without going too much more over time into what all I do. You can just check it out there. (laughs) There you go. I might have to have you back for a second because this has been just too much fun. Okay, (laughs) cool. I also find it interesting that the other person that I know that has empowered in their business name or like their website name is also autistic. (laughs) Right. There's actually, it's a, I'm very attached to the philosophy behind the name. I consider it a how is that adjective being animal empowered the mm-hmm. entire philosophy behind the name and what and how it helped encourage me to make that leap to reaching out to other neurodivergent people in the first place as an openly neurodivergent person myself though that took a number of years to kind of sort of collect the courage to do was the fact that you know animals exist they provide knowledge and skills that we can learn by learning it, we are empowered and we can take that knowledge and skills and in turn empower animals. So that's where the name comes from. I'm, I'm quite attached and uh, it's really been the driving force behind the philosophy of I want other people to be able to have the success and feel the empowerment that I have through animals. So there you go. Nice. Love that. Love that. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you guys so much. This is, yeah, totally <laughs> this has been great. Yeah. (laughs) Anything else you wanted to add, Jade, before I wrap us up? Mm, I think that's all. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Stay nerdy.